Alan Marlowe and Dennis Kelly flew to Bangkok in the spring of 1970. It was Kelly's first time to Asia. And as he and Marlowe saw the sights, he was nearly overwhelmed with the otherworldly beauty of Thailand. It was a kind of paradise. But after a week, it was time to go. The great teeming mass of India was their destination. India was like nowhere in the world. It was a place full of the extremes of wealth and poverty, of asceticism and indulgence, of squalor and grandeur, of hell and heaven on earth, pressed so tightly together they bled into each other in ways that were as confusing as they were intoxicating. And that's the, seems to be a, a sort of the common story with India. These absolute utter extremes and illness and poverty and, and just, just unbelievably difficult even to, um, to be around in some cases. Then you go and meet Lama Govinda, a famous realized Tibetan Buddhist teacher, who said something very, very profound. LSD might indeed open you up, but true spiritual awakening is ever-present, my young friend. While awake, while asleep, while dying, even now, between an old man and a young one, he winked at Kelly, who smiled back. Enlightened mind does not come and go when you take LSD. You see, your mind and the mind of God are not two. Your mind and mind on LSD are the same mind, do you see? Your mind and my mind are not two. There is only one reality. There is only one view. Even though most of us only see the brightly covered garments in which it covers itself. LSD shows you this, but it is not this. It does not cause this. Do you understand? It's paradoxical, but true, and quite a, an interesting lesson that Govinda transmitted. Yeah, the transmission of the koan. It's like in Zen, we say, ordinary mind is the way. Right. So it's, it's to awaken to that depth, or this depth, and to remain awake. One of the one of the great difficulties is, is the recognition that ordinary mind is the way, not the subtle manic high that happens when you take psychedelics or do intense meditation practices, right? Right. Those are those are heights. Those are stimulating moments. Right. This divine moment that you and I are sharing, my brother, in all its mundaneness, yes, is so vastly beyond what our ego is thinking. This is. Yes. So it's to blow, finally blow everything out of the water and, and, and to come back to the gift of life. And right. Oh, my God, we can actually communicate. Right. <laughs> and across the distance, this is magic. Where are you? Hello? Hello? So to come back to that. And so that's what he's pointing at. And that's yeah. what the traditions are, uh, are, are trying to inform us to. Uh, you know, not the... Like I said, the the subtle religious politic, right, right. You know, but to, to to bring us to that reality and that depth, and that was pointed out many times to me, you know, through through my path, right. You know, again and again, someone, you know, a grin or a wink, you know, right, 
Right. Someone who's finally come home into the ordinariness, into the divinity of the ordinariness. Right. And then also the divinity of uh, some of the um, non-ordinariness, of which you had several. You leave there and go on to Sri Lanka, and Alan Marlowe's guru, Swami Garabala, and you had uh, several rather extraordinary experiences with this gentleman. Garabala was about as different from the reserved and contained Suzuki Roshi as one could imagine. Roshi was always impeccably shaved, his crisp robes folded perfectly along their seams, and his voice measured and thoughtful. His end center was the picture of order and discipline, and it was run with far greater efficiency than a military barracks. Garibaldi, by contrast, looked like a spiritual madman, hair askew, food in his beard, stains on his sari, and what appeared to be little to no sense of self-importance. The ashram was nearly always in a state near chaos, and it was only through the efforts of a few enormously dedicated students that the whole thing didn't evolve into anarchy. He sounds like an altogether thoroughly fascinating fellow. Absolutely fascinating. Fully enlightened. Yeah. Fully enlightened from all all traditions, all perspectives. I mean, you know, he would... I'll never forget when he said... Are you going to stay? What do you want? Which tradition, which traditional enlightenment do you want? I have them all. They're right here. I know, and you went down a list thing. I'll give you, which one do you want? You can have it. <laughs> and one of the great moments was when he asked me what if I'd stay. He said, well, what do you want? Power? Money? I said, right. no, no, no. He said, what do you want? Power? Money? Uh, how about young girls? <laughs> how about young boys? That's, it. That's what he said. Then young boys? <laughs> We have it all in India, Mr. Kelly. Why are you going away? And then he started weeping. <laughs> Tried to go weep prick. <laughs> and you had one sort of, you're, you're both kind of trading koans in, in sort of a, who can, you know, answer the koan, right? What are you doing, he demanded. Well, Swami, Kelly replied, swallowing, I suppose you could say I'm practicing Buddhism. He smiled. Kelly thought that was especially clever to say he was practicing Buddhism while eating, drinking, wine, and talking. Very Zen, since it implied he was being mindful in all he was doing, and that there was nothing one could do outside of mindful awareness. Tch! The Swami hissed, obviously and transparently disappointed. He dropped his eyes and shook his head. Tell me, he asked, looking back up, how does one practice an ism? Kelly opened his mouth, but nothing came out. He was stumped. Swami Chi shook his head. You don't, he thundered, smacking the table. You practice what is. The words hit Kelly with all the force of a bullwhip. Practice what is. And that was very clever. You then got into a truly extraordinary experience. And one that I'm still sort of rather curious about what you make of it. Swami asked for you to come with me. He needs you to arrange for a car. He wants to take Mr. Marlowe to see Guru Ma. She is Yogi Swami's wife. 
Yogi Swami was the man who had been Swami Garubala's guru, who had died at the age of 93. A powerful yogi said to possess miraculous powers. So you rent a car, a uh, tata, and off you go. Come, Garabali said, and the four swamis stepped aside. Only 30 feet away was a low hut with a rounded roof, no more than five feet off the ground at its highest. Fuck, Kelly whispered to Marlowe. I might have driven into that thing if we hadn't stopped. Did you see it? Marlowe, his eyes wide, shook his head. Come, Garabali called again, less patiently. Come now, she is waiting. There was an opening in the hut's mud and animal skin roof, and smoke trickled out of it. Swami Garabali lifted a leather flap at the front of the hut, indicating that Marlowe and Kelly were to go in. They had to drop to their knees and crawl, and found themselves more or less blind when they entered, for their eyes were used to the searing light of the midday sun. For a long moment, Kelly could see nothing at all. The hut was very hot and smelled of herbs and smoke and incense and age. The floor was slightly dug out so that Kelly could stand if he bent over at the waist. He dropped first to his knees and then, as he saw more, down on the surprisingly cool earth. The whole hut was no more than 15 feet across, with a fire in the very center. Marlowe moved towards the light, and as Kelly watched him, he saw Guru Ma take shape out of the shadows. She was sitting on a straw mat in front of the flames, the flickering light falling sharply across her face. Kelly looked to his left and to his right. When he glanced back to the fire, Guru Ma was looking at him. Her eyes, even from ten feet away, were like nothing he had ever seen. They burned like black diamonds in her face and held a wisdom that was not of this world, a divine madness that saw right into his soul. He felt part of his mind give way and break free. Her lips parted in a toothless smile, and she cackled as Swami Ji crawled inside. Her laughter shook the very universe, and Kelly pulled himself up against the very back of the hut, knees to his chest, as far from her as he could get. His heart thudded against his ribs, and blood swirled through his temples. Marlowe glanced back at Kelly, all eyes. Gurus Ma spoke in Veda to the Swami, and the two of them talked in low tones. She sat in front of a small fire. Marlowe and the Swami sat on the other end of it. Garibali pointed to Marlowe, and Kelly saw Marlowe's body jolt when she looked at him. She spoke at length to the Swami, who translated into English, but Kelly was forgetting what was said almost as soon as it was spoken. She closed her eyes and began chanting rhythmically, rocking back and forth on her little straw mat. The air grew thicker. She opened her eyes and cackled again, speaking to Swami Garibali, who showed no trace of his usual self. He reminded Kelly more of Suzuki Roshi, set, serious, focused, almost menacing. Open your mouth, he said to Marlowe. She took a handful of brown, foul-smelling goop 
from the kettle and put it in Alan's mouth, then handed him a bottle of palmetto liquor. Alan grimaced and swallowed, and she smiled a toothless grin at him. Kelly let out a breath of air. It was almost over. Guru Ma and the hut were making his head spin, and he longed to feel the sunlight on his skin and to be back in the car, driving, in control of the vehicle and of his own destiny again. Since it was clear that they had accomplished what they had come to do, he shifted his body weight to stand and leave. Guru Ma's eyes found his, and Kelly froze. She spoke, and Swami replied in Veda to her while shaking his head. She responded, uttering a laugh as vast and as open as the universe. Kelly felt another part of himself come undone. Come, the Swami said, frowning. She's going to have you take vows and give you a Hindu name. She says you came here to be initiated. No, no, Kelly protested. Tell her I'm honored, but not interested. Kuruma laughed again. Her eyes met his, and she offered a grin that exposed pink, toothless gums. The wrinkled lids came down over the fire pit eyes, and rocking and chanting, she prayed. After some time, one of those ancient hands, the skin stretched over the bone, reached out, and, with a surprisingly cold touch, opened his mouth. Her eyes opened. The other hand placed a scoop of the foul-smelling stuff into his mouth, and when he grimaced at the taste of it, she handed him a bottle of palmetto liquor. As he brought the bottle away from his lips, she smacked him in the middle of his forehead, and Kelly felt the room grow dim. She spoke to the Swami. Your name, Garobali translated, is Sim Akuchi. That means young lion. Looking directly at Kelly, she said something else, and he heard the Swami translating into his right ear. She says, she has an instruction for you. Don't bite anyone. <laughs> that was hilarious. Come. The three men crawled across the dirt and through the leather flap. Kelly looked back to see the ancient woman sitting at her fire, smiling that toothless smile at him. He pushed the flap aside and stood upright, blinking and blinded by the intensity of the sun and sand. After a few moments, Kelly got his bearings. The foul taste was still in his mouth, but there was something else. There was no Dennis Kelly anymore. All that existed was radical clarity, and he, Marlowe, and Garibaldi walked back to their car by the four ancient swamis. When they reached it, Kelly turned around, and part of his mind stopped. From one part of himself, he knew what he was seeing was impossible. At the same time, he wasn't surprised in the least, nor did he feel much need to understand what was happening. There was no way to explain, given the world and the culture in which he was raised, what now stood before him. He might try and explain away the information coming from his eyes into his brain, but explain it he could not. Marlowe, too, had stopped walking and was staring back in the direction they had come, his mouth hanging gently ajar. 
They were still in the middle of the large, flat, utterly empty desert plain. The sun still beat overhead, and the old Tata, rusted and dented, sat just behind them, its engines still pinging as it cooled. Marlow and Kelly stood shoulder to shoulder. All they saw was the desert, wide and flat and brown. There were no ancient swamis, no hut with smoke coming out of it, no Guru Ma. As far as either of them can see, it was just the three of them and the old Tata. Keddy heard Garabala laughing behind him and the sound of a car door closing. Come, Simakuchi, come, Atmanand, it is too hot to stay in the sun. Kelly got into the car. No one spoke for the long drive back, and it would be months before Marlowe and Kelly would speak of the events of that day. What did you say to each other when you finally spoke? (laughs) (laughs) What was that? (laughs) Well, we just shared our experiences, and they were quite similar, only he was there, you know, seeking initiation. Right. So in his line, the Vishnavian tradition, and uh, I was there as a tourist, right? Right. And so pulled in, but and the experience was—it was just beyond anything you you could imagine. Just right. being in that hut with those and the swamis—they—they they were they were ancients. Yeah. I can't. I don't. I don't know. Like I said, I you know from that particular moment, things shifted for me in, yeah. in civilization of consciousness, and that's sharing your subjective mind with someone. Yeah. And. You know, which is part of, or really can be, it's not absolutely necessary, but can be enormously beneficial. Right. And and is is quite traditional. And and part of what we do when we're teaching, and we gather, and when we're teaching, you're actually transmitting the consciousness that you're talking about. Right. Because not just the, many of the mistakes are made where it becomes uh, uh, intellectual exercise of, of right. sharing, uh, not sharing information, but not sharing the realization. Right. So that was the transmission, or the Shakti put, you might say, in right. that tradition. So right. having experienced that directly, uh, <laughs> you know, and then the shift that followed. But the amazing thing was that it all disappeared. Yeah. And, and the Swami wouldn't discuss it. And uh, he he was more like he thought we were crazy or something. And, <laughs> and Alan and... And I, we just, we could, we could just never figure it out why it disappeared. Yeah. And and then was it the the biscuits? They said, "What did she give us?" Right. right. We had to take the goop and drink it down with double arak. You know, right. <laughs> so were we just hallucinating a little bit already? And yeah. Sort of left it at that. It must have been some powerful, you know, psychedelic or psychotropic. Right. And that when we turned and we looked, they disappeared. And one, you know. <laughs> And this is the wonderful thing about subtle state experiences, in, in where, where I separate out the, the subtle and the causal. I mean, and and the and the and the gross is because right. people keep trying to bring the subtle into the gross. The subtle exists and needs to be respected as a mental dominion, right? Not a a gross dominion, but, right? But egos want to do it; they want to bend spoons, right? Yeah. So, there's another one we'll, we'll we'll get to briefly with uh, Shiva and Shakti of, of a similar. Oh, a simpler God. type. Gorgeous. 
Yeah, but that sounded um, truly heart-opening and, and ex- extraordinary. Um, you and Marlo separate, and you head to Varanasi. was a city where bodies were brought to be cremated, a Hindu necessity. Kelly walks through the impossibly old streets, taking in the smells and sounds of a city whose entire business, whose entire reason for being, was to handle the thousands upon thousands of corpses brought to be cremated each and every day. Several days pass, and in a flash, he recognized something profound. For two days, he had been watching the life and death in front of him, not as an American, horrified at people bathing in putrid waters or at the feral dogs scavenging human remains. He wasn't looking at things as a Buddhist, seeing the suffering and the impermanence of life, nor as a Christian, seeing a battle between good and evil, nor as a traveler or even a spectator. Kelly realized he was beyond any idea or concepts of good or evil or any need to explain what was arising around him. Life simply was. His need to categorize or rationalize made no difference at all in the reality of what was happening. Kelly was, he realized, no longer bound to his cultural programming, no longer bound by the need to stand in judgment of life, of others, of himself. He was free, and his purpose for coming to India clear. He was practicing what is, not an ism. Uncrossing numb legs, he stood, with the city of death at his back, he made his way out into the cleansing air of the countryside on his way to Delhi and was soon on a plane back to San Francisco. It was time to go home. Quite a trip. Yeah, that was was one of my favorite trips. (laughs) But also, I was sitting above the charnel ground watching the bodies burn. Oh, wow. That must have been quite a view. And not just the view, the smell of human flesh. It's, it's, It's lovelier than pork, actually. (laughs) <laughs> so it's, it's the smell is quite pungent and surprising. So, but that's yeah. to to sit in the charnel ground. Yeah, yeah. So we're doing it with my meditation practice. Yeah. Wow.